0: The Culture and Animals Foundation.
1: Think, create, explore, select. London, England.
2: February 26, 1824. It's nearly two years since passage of the cruel treatment of Catilact, the world's first animal protection legislation, from an elected body. The Irishman Richard Martin, member of the British Parliament and sponsor of that law, is back on the floor of the House of Commons. This time, he's raising the issue of bear-baiting and other cruel sports.
1: The motion which I have to propose is a committee be appointed to inquire how far cruel sports, if persevered in, tend to deteriorate and corrupt the morals of the people. This is a proposition, which it is only necessary to state, I am sure, to command universal assent from those who hear it.
2: It doesn't, of course. Sir Robert Heron, Member of Parliament for Peterborough, rises to give...
1: My utmost opposition to the motion
0: of
3: the Honourable Member.
2: No surprise when you learn that Sir Robert and his wife keep a menagerie, including (laughs) alpacas, lemurs, porcupines and kangaroos, although strangely enough, not Herons, at their stately home. Heron continues...
0: I beg the House not to sanction such a petty trumpery and I add such a blundering kind of legislation. Does Martin
2: sigh? Does he give in to mockery? No. He appeals to the House's desire to govern public standards. With success behind him from two years earlier, he's emboldened to stir the feelings of his honourable fellows by addressing rights for animals directly.
1: It might be said that animals are not possessed of those rights which man possesses.
2: I, for one, welcome that, Mike.
1: But I should contend that though they could not be said to possess the rights in the same degree as men, yet that being placed under the protection of man, they are entitled, as far as is consistent with the use which was given to man over the brute creation, to be treated with kindness and humanity.
2: Was Martin's 1824 bid to end bear baiting successful? Had his achievements of 1822 initiated an era to change everything for animals? We're about to find
4: out. It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation.
5: We still have a legal system dominated by
3: people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals.
5: Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges.
0: And yet these two men managed to actually get majorities for the first legislation to actually protect animals from cruelty. It was a colossal achievement. Achievement.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Martins Act 200 documentary, inspired by the bicentenary of the cruel treatment of Act 1822. I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sunderland and author of some books and reports on our relationship to other animals. In this six-part audio documentary, I'll be your guide to two centuries of animal protection movement across the Anglophone world, To help us learn from history, evaluate the present and imagine the future of human-animal relations. All of this in the context of the emergencies of the Anthropocene. Climate catastrophe, biodiversity loss and species extinction. The series, supported by the Culture and Animals Foundation, operates under a simple premise. That to change our relationships to other species is perhaps the most important key to unlock a salvageable future for us all. It's my belief that all beings have a birthright to flourish and that we have, in fact, come closer than we know to making this a reality. There have been clues strewn along our paths in humankind's history, if only we could see them. So, join me, legal scholars, activists, writers, artists and experts who have dedicated their lives to protecting animals as we go on a journey from the 18th century to the present and 30 years into the future to ask... What can we do to end the injustices that animals suffer, and to change the world? So, did Richard Martin's 1824 bid to end bear baiting succeed? We'll find out in episode 2, but as most of us know, 200 years on, alas, the 1822 Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act, known colloquially as Martin's Act, didn't even end the cruel treatment of cattle, let alone other animals. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got a lot to discover about the early history of animal advocacy. First, who was Richard Martin? How was it that a privileged Irishman brought about the world's first successful piece of animal protection law? What kind of person was he? Complicated and very much a a man of his time and class. That's Kim Stallwood, former executive director of PETA in the US, independent scholar and author and a lifelong advocate for animals.
4: He was born on an estate that was uh, 30 miles across in Ireland, and although they were like land-rich, cash-poor, I think he cared uh, about people and he cared about animals, and I think that his mum and her sisters encouraged him to be sympathetic towards animals. Let's find out a bit more about Martin.
3: So he is, is Irish. Um, he's born in Galway in, in 1754. His parents were Catholic, but he's actually raised a, a Protestant. And he becomes a very wealthy landowner in, in Ireland. Uh, as pretty much everybody who was as an MP had to be pretty wealthy to get into Parliament.
2: That's Helen Cowie, professor of early modern history at York University, an author of Victims of Fashion, a study of animal-based commodities in the 19th century.
3: So he sits in the English Parliament from 1818 to to 1826 as an MP and he supports generally fairly liberal causes, although he's by by no means a radical. So he supports things like Irish Catholic emancipation, the abolition of slavery, crucially, which is is going on in parallel to a lot of the the animal legislation. He also supports the end of the the death penalty for for forgery. But he's mainly remembered, of course, for his work in, in protecting animals.
2: We need to recognise that, for all his compassion, Martin was also a man of his time. His love of animals, for instance, didn't extend to not eating them.
4: He was also uh, someone who went out hunting and shooting on his estates. stalwart again. But as we've already learnt, Martin was complicated. But he also, once the act was passed and he uh, succeeded in getting people prosecuted, he would also often pay their fines and... So he had compassion for the the working classes. So I think there was a class bias obviously to him, but there was also at the same time a empathy for people who abused animals um, in the sense of wanting to correct their ways and punish them, but also not let the punishment be too severe. Richard's father sent him to Harrow an English boarding
2: school where Martin met Samuel Parr, a Cambridge graduate whose views on animal cruelty would leave a lasting impression on him. Some of Martin's school friends would later become colleagues, perhaps the first constituency for animals in any parliament in the world. He led a colourful life,
4: to say the least. Martin is a fascinating figure, and uh, you know he survived two shipwrecks. Um, he had money problems throughout like, his whole life, and he died living in France because he had to escape the creditors who were chasing him and I'm impressed by how he was he wrote the law he was the legislator and then when, when the law was passed he then used it to arrest people and prosecute them you know so he, he ran the gamut of all the roles to actually prosecute people for, for cruelty to animals and it's a remarkable story really and he did this in his 60s also for the remaining years when he was in the house of commons he was introducing animal legislation like two or three times a year so he's a a remarkable figure and he's a great unsung hero and i think the 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 movement should understand its origins
2: an unsung hero who lived in a revolutionary age literally martin not only witnessed but was involved in the great changes of the 18th and 19th centuries that shape our culture and politics today. American independence, the French Revolution, the Act of Union that dissolved the Irish Parliament, and King George III's refusal to emancipate Catholics from discrimination. These shaped the foment in which Richard Martin lived and thrived. For example, Martin among many Irish, followed the American patriots' fight for independence closely, believing it could inspire an independent island.
6: Well, I think if you're looking at that period of time, there are several different seismic revolutions, if you like, that are going on throughout the 18th century. There's, of course, Enlightenment itself.
2: Kevin Yule is Associate Professor in American History at the University of Sunderland.
6: Uh, First of all, the American Revolution, then the French Revolution. The fact of these revolutions threw up, all of these relationships into question. And I suspect that humanity's domination over nature was also thrown up into question. And I also suspect that people for the very first time started looking at our relationships from the top to the bottom, which might've of course influenced the idea of animal relationships, our relationships with animals, and might've in the end inspired the Martin Act.
2: As the United States was born, Ireland was inspired to push for change. But
6: was Ireland too close to Britain's back door? Yes, of course. I mean, we have to keep in mind that the uh, Tone Revolution in 1798, that this was inspired, in fact, Tone said himself, it was inspired by the American Revolution. And the American Revolution had the effect of shaking up all of these old assumed relationships. But in Ireland, things were shaking up at the same time. Tone, of course, was a Protestant, uh, but it was the Catholic landowners in particular who were very much opposed uh, it to British rule and who wa- wanted to bring it to an end. So I suspect there would have been a revolutionary spirit there as well. Revolution was on the way, but not as Martin had hoped. British
2: Prime Minister William Pitt, in order to keep his enemies closer to him in London rather than plotting far afield in Dublin, was using smoke and mirrors, some would say lies, to please competing interests. Pitt convinced Martin and others that Irish Union with Great Britain meant Catholics would be seen as less of a threat by Britain's Protestant majority. Once Catholics weren't seen as a threat, emancipation could begin proper. Or so Martin thought. As we'll hear, the political shift from Dublin to Westminster as a result of the Act of Union in 1801 was critical for animals. It gave Martin his seat in the British Parliament from where... 20 years later, he'd successfully advocate for the cruel treatment of Catillact. But there were other transformations taking place. Agitation for the abolition of the slave trade and slavery itself, male suffrage, and opposition to the subjugation of women. These partly aligned with a new sentiment for other subjugated beings, animals.
6: So when you had Thomas Paine writing The Rights of Man, this immediately appeared uh, to women as saying, well, what about the rights of women? And for the very first time you had vindication of the rights of women being written. And this might have influenced with the anti-animal cruelty idea in that if you have uh, the rights of these underlings, what about these underlings over here?
2: What did people make of animals in Martin's time? Did they take animals in their fur, feathers and flesh for granted?
3: Yes, I think you can see a lot of that from certainly sort of around about the turn of the, the 19th century, whether it's animals being used for labour, um, particularly horses in that instance, or animal, animal products being exploited.
2: That's Helen Cowie again. For Cowie, the expansion of the means of production in the Industrial Revolution led to an acceleration in the exploitation of animals?
3: I think partly because you've got the, the technology to do that on a, on a mass scale, uh, whether it's, you know, steamships importing sort of live animals or animal skins, whether it's crucially sort of guns to, to shoot animals in the field, or whether it's, you know, just the market and the ability to kind of distribute these products and, and advertising and things featuring this as well. So I think a lot of it is perhaps rooted there. It's arguable that some of it is perhaps even even worse today in terms of things like, like factory farming and you know, the sheer quantity of animals used in, say, research but I think you start to see the beginnings of a lot of this in in the 19th century and obviously ironically but also to some extent it explains it going alongside increased animal welfare legislation and increased concern about animals so I think those things often work in parallel even though they seem a bit contradictory
2: so an acceleration but the cruelty was there already in 1751 the cartoonist and satirist William Hogarth gave us his four stages of cruelty a series of four paintings depicting the abuse and torture of animals that occurred every day on the streets of Britain's cities. In Hogarth's first picture, the protagonist, Tom Nero, is seen shoving an arrow up a dog's anus, while around him other youths are blinding birds and stringing up kittens. Not everyone is so heartless. Another youth is shocked and tries to distract Tom with a tart. But the story continues into the second stage, where the grown-up Tom beats his horse, who has collapsed pulling a cart laden with four lawyers, too cheap to hire another cart. In stage three, Nero has become a highway robber, having slipped the throat of his pregnant partner in crime and lover. In stage four, Tom has been hanged for his crimes and his body, ironically, dissected for the study of anatomy, with his innards unrolled on the floor, eaten by a dog. The clear moral is that cruelty to animals as a child graduates into brutality to other humans as an adult. Hogarth himself said that the images were done in
0: the hopes of preventing, in some degree, that cruel treatment of poor animals, which makes the streets of London more disagreeable to the human mind than anything whatever, the very describing of which gives pain. Not all Londoners were cruel. In
2: 1776, the 40-year-old Reverend Humphrey Primat published a dissertation on the duty of mercy and sin of cruelty to brute animals. The
0: clergyman wrote, Whether we bray like an ass, speak like a man, whistle like a bird, or are mute as a fish, nature never intended these distinctions
2: as foundations for right of tyranny or oppression. This was also the time of philosopher Jeremy Bentham's famous treatise, with its equally legendary question about animals. The question is not, can they reason, nor can they talk? But can
3: they suffer?
2: Like Hogarth, like his shocked boy with the tart, many, especially in the clergy, were appealing to man's better morals for the treatment of animals. Helen Cowie.
3: So on the one hand, you've got kind of changing ideas, perhaps increased sentimentality towards some animals anyway, including pets. Uh, and you've got more sort of um, non-conformist movements like the Quakers and the Methodists who particularly kind of push the good treatment of animals. Um, John Wesley in particular is, is sort of famous for treating his horses well and always feeding them before he ate himself. So you've got those people on, sort of on a more radical level who are, who are for religious reasons uh, promoting compassion. Uh, you've also got this broader kind of context of of reforming movements in general
2: context is important here the age also saw a changing economic environment especially the rise of cities and urbanization
3: so particularly in urban areas the cruelty towards say cattle is both more intense than it was but also more visible. People are seeing cattle being kind of driven through the street and beaten as they're they're taken to Smithfield Market Uh, and the middle classes in particular find this quite repulsive and are certainly concerned not only for the animals but about the sort of moral impact of, of witnessing this.
2: Helen Cowie again.
3: So all of these things kind of shift the bar with with animal relations, uh, particularly with things like bull baiting as well. Again, the change in the way people work is important. So so it's been suggested that, you know, a bull bait was a really long, drawn-out activity. It might take days. You didn't know how long it would take for the, the dogs to bring down the bull or, or vice versa. And that was no good when you get to a factory system where people have to kind of stick to the rhythm of the machine. You can't have people sort of wandering around baiting bulls all day. So it's argued that from that perspective as well, some of these older sports become Um, sort of anachronistic and and people want to get rid of them.
2: For Erica Fudge, Professor of English Studies at the University of Strathclyde and founder of the British Animal Studies Network, the changes brought about by urbanisation in this period are formative of the relationships with animals.
5: When we get to the city and people are taken out of that environment where there's a close connection between the animal you live with, the meat you might be eating, the dairy, and you know this kind of reciprocity, that still will end in death, but that is part of that process and that relationship. What you're suddenly presented with is a totally different relationship to animals.
2: As we've heard, the first decades of the 19th century sort a fervour for reform. America was independent, France was revolutionised to some degree, and suffrage and abolition were gaining wider acceptance. There's little doubt that Martin drew comparisons between how enslaved black people were treated and the cruelty towards animals. During a visit to the Caribbean, Martin saw firsthand the abuse of black people as they worked for their white overlords in harsh conditions on the coffee plantations. He saw them bought and sold in a manner similar to the horse markets on the west coast of Ireland. Later, Martin formed a close friendship with the abolitionist William Wilberforce and supported the anti-slavery measures that were eventually passed in the British Parliament in the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. Emancipation whether of slaves, Catholics or cattle at least from suffering could be said to speak to Richard Martin's sense of justice prompted by independence the newly freed american states needed their own constitutions
6: then most northern states forbade slavery uh, some in even in the south there were suggestions of ending slavery in some of the border states but they changed these later on i suspect there was a there's also a connection between martin and these acts against slavery in the northern states. Kevin Yule again. Most northern states had already got rid of slavery by the turn of the 19th century.
2: It's interesting to consider the ways that other social movements influenced Martin's advocacy for animals then, as we think of the decolonising, intersectional and climate justice movements and the lessons they can give us for animal advocacy today. Yet another change was underway. The first real evidence of widespread pet keeping – This was perhaps the outcome of two gradual developments. A final separation of domestic animals, such as pigs and cows, from the physical spaces of the household, and the rise of leisure time.
5: Well, to be honest, it's not the case that people only started keeping pets or domestic animals in the 19th century.
2: That's Hilda Keane, renowned animal historian, former dean of Ruskin College, Oxford, and author of many books, including The Great Cat and Dog Massacre.
5: If you think back in a way, even Chaucer in his Canterbury Tales would even describe the prioress weeping if a mouse was caught in a trap or if any of the small dogs she regularly fed was struck or died. So I think there is a big background to this before we think more recently. But from the late 18th century, uh, pets are described in various ways, such as etchings, illustrations, pictures displayed in print shops, or in books depicting cats or dogs in a domestic space. Uh, Chat books, for instance, such as the Cries of London, included written accounts and images of animals.
2: People loved their pets then. Indeed, they were sometimes regarded as members of the community. Some of the upper class dedicated poems and epigraphs to their beloved animals. There were also plenty of everyday acts of compassion from ordinary people, and they did not go unnoticed.
5: Clearly, the Martins Act was not just about implementation of the agreed legislation, but the recognition that all animals were not protected by the law.
2: Hilda Keane again.
5: On the one hand, that was seen by a select committee run by the MP William McKinnon, which included evidence from people about their own domestic animals being taken and preventing the cruel and improper treatment of animals. It included examples of failed court cases and different people's accounts of their cats. So Thomas Young, for example, was a porter who carried sailors' hammocks and chests or did odd jobs, while he used to wonder where the cats went to as having lost seven. Also, Mr Eward, subsequently a vet, lecturer and expert on horses, also stated there, as he later wrote, there is no domesticated animal. Quadruped or foul to whom we do not owe something.
2: Now that we've got a little context, let's return to Humanity Dick himself. It's 1789, and Martin has moved his family to Paris to be out of the reach of his creditors. Despite being the son of Ireland's largest landholder, a famous duelist, army colonel, actor, and politician, Martin's in crippling debt. He has no head for money or business, an inability to recognise the consequences of his personal actions, and has made many enemies. However, he is a passionate believer in causes and approaches everything with the same great enthusiasm. His compassion for others was was universal. That's Richard Ryder, who it's fair to say is a legend in the world of animal advocacy. Ryder was former chair of the RSPCA and is the coiner of the term speciesism. It was some time to move to Paris, for Martin arrived as the revolution began. He managed to survive, but the 1790s were, let's say, eventful. With investors interested in setting up a copper mine on Martin's estate, he left his wife and family in Paris to meet the investors in London. While there, Prime Minister Pitt called a snap election. Martin made a snap decision too. He chose to return, not to Paris, but to Galway, to fight for his seat in Parliament. He lost. In misery, he sent for his wife, but abandoned and alone, she'd fallen in love with another man, John Petrie. Martin sued for divorce. But by stroke of fortune, that would be hard to credit if it was fiction, the divorce proceeding introduced him to a man who'd play an important role in his life.
0: Order in the court.
2: Petrie's lawyer, Lord Thomas Erskine. Here's Richard Ryder on Erskine.
0: Well, he was a pretty good lawyer, and he had the reputation for being probably the best, the most um, oratorical of all the the speakers at the time.
2: Ryder makes the point that Martin's success in enacting legislation relied on the groundwork prepared by Erskine, as well as Erskine's ability to win
0: over the House of Lords. He was a remarkably gifted speaker. Uh, And obviously to get things like that through the House of Lords at the time was quite extraordinary. Um, And as you say, a lot of these animal rights people of the earlier days, Bentham included, they speak like modern people. They, They were ahead of their time. They're great men. We need to know more about them. People should be prouder of these people who started something completely new, uh, the first time since classical times that anybody had talked seriously about the relationship between human beings and the other animals. They led the way. We'll come back to Erskine later. For
2: now, Martin won his divorce case against Petrie and his wife and Erskine lost. As a final note on Martin's divorce and character, it's worth noting that despite his debt, Martin had his settlement of 10,000 pounds which is about £230,000 or $290,000 today, converted into small change and he threw it to passers-by from his coach as it rumbled back from London to Galway. From 1791 to 1793, Martin lived in exile on his huge family estate, miles of boggy land keeping him safe from creditors and the law. His father was now in his 80s, so Martin took control of the estate, managing the tenants and farms, but, as you might have guessed, not turning a profit. Richard Ryder again. He
0: spent so much of his personal fortune on his starving tenants that that actually he ended up himself impoverished and in debt. He 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 beggared himself, giving away generously his money to help others. So he actually earned the the, the nickname Humanity Dick, and that was actually for his. Humanity to his peasantry uh, as much as for anything else.
2: Being lord of the land gave Martin an opportunity to impress on others that the maltreatment of animals would not be tolerated. And then, in 1794, Martin's father died. He inherited not only the estate, but also the patent that had been granted by King William a hundred years beforehand to Martin's grandfather. That meant that Martin not only could legally control his own army, but also, crucially, hold his own court and administer justice. So, the compassion Martin had shown to animals, influenced by his mother and aunts and his teacher Samuel Parr, could now become law on his own land. Those who mistreated animals were arrested and brought before Martin, who was sole judge and jury. Guilty. If he found them guilty, they were sentenced to imprisonment in an old pirate castle on an island in the middle of Ballinae Hinch Lake with Martin rowing them out and lecturing them all the way on the importance of treating animals with kindness. We meet Martin again on January 9th, 1798. His new wife, Harriet, installed in Galway and on his first day back in the Irish Parliament in Dublin. This was after a break of 16 years. But it's also his last day for a while because Parliament was suspended due to a bloody Irish rebellion against British rule led by Wolf Tone, who Kevin Yorke mentioned earlier. It's here that we need to acknowledge what it took to be a Member of Parliament in the 1790s. Martin bought his way into politics, with his father literally paying for what was called a rotten borough, which was a constituency with no actual voters. Martin's return to Parliament was smoothed after another electoral loss, when a family friend stepped aside so Martin could take up his seat. Given these realities, it's perhaps not surprising that Martin held a dim view of the Irish Parliament.
3: It
1: is rife with incorrigible wickedness and corruption.
2: Despite being a seeker of Catholic emancipation and no supporter of rule from London, Martin, persuaded by the promises of British Prime Minister William Pitt, considered the chance that true Irish freedom would come by making this sacrifice, to confer union with Westminster for now for the greatest Irish good, Later. Martin told the British Parliament,
1: Some things which at first blush appear bad not only cease to be so but even become remedies when compared to greater disadvantages.
2: Despite Martin's speech, this first vote for union was lost by 109 to 111 votes. But wheels were in motion, and when the Westminster Parliament voted for union by 236 votes to 50, and with support for the Irish Parliament growing weaker, it was only a matter of time. When the Irish Parliament reconvened on January the 15th, 1800, Martin made arguments not heard before. He painted the picture of how a group of united Irishmen in Westminster would serve Ireland better than a divided, bickering set in Dublin.
1: We are a discordant, disagreeing band, liable to perpetual destruction... We must therefore pledge ourselves by such a bond as shall secure us from abandoning each other.
2: Not everyone agreed, as many Irishmen were still against the Union. When Martin was attacked in Dublin by a mob of a thousand, he pulled out his pistol.
1: If anyone advances more than six inches, I'll shoot you dead as that paving stone.
2: Backed by his reputation as a brilliant shot, no one advanced. Instead, a cheer rose for Martin's bravery and the crowd let him pass unharmed. After months of private persuasion, bribes and political manoeuvres by the British, the motion for union between Dublin and Westminster was passed on June 7th 1800, and the Act of Union came into force on January 1st 1801. It would give Martin his seat in Westminster as MP for Galway, and set the clock running on the delivery of the first ever piece of animal protection legislation, although that would take another 22 years. And that will be the subject of episode two. In episode two, we'll explore in detail what Martin did to bring about legislation for animals. The false starts, the close calls, and stunts that any politician today would be proud of. All to set in motion the next 200 years of legislation for animal protection, a legacy we still draw upon today. Thanks to Peter Egan, Ryan Rhodes, Martin Rowe, and the Culture and Animals Foundation, and all of the experts who gave their time for this episode and those that follow. You can listen to the full interview with all of our experts, hear their origin stories, and how they came to work for, study, and advocate for animals on our website www.chart2050.org. Think the
0: Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate.